Hi everyone, Will here. If you asked me to close my eyes and conjure the iconic images of cinema history, I might think of Harold Lloyd dangling from the clock tower, Charlie Chaplin winding through the factory gears, Janet Lee stretching out her arm as she collapses in the shower, and of course, a gorilla in a diving helmet traipsing through Bronson Canyon. The gorilla is Roman, the star of 1953's Robot Monster. With the swiftness of a deadly cosmic ray, the Earth is invaded by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission, death for all humans. What astounding technical developments are being made to protect mankind? Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. Robot Monster told the story of a post-apocalyptic Earth, in which the last humans mounted a desperate campaign of resistance against their alien oppressors. Roman is the film's anti-hero, an alien invader who finds himself gradually swayed by the human's capacity for love. Here he is in one of the film's most iconic scenes. There is one thing you do not understand, great guidance. You reject the plan? I wish to make an estimate of my own. To think for yourself is to be like the human. Yes, to be like the human. To laugh, feel, want. Why are these things not in the plan? If you know one thing about Robot Monster... You know that Roman has the body of a gorilla, with a diving helmet and antenna on his head. He was played by George Barrows, an actor who owned a gorilla suit, and was thus called upon to play gorillas in many low-budget films. Robot Monster became notorious among the boomer kids who saw it on TV, a reputation that solidified when Harry and Michael Medved included it in their influential 1978 book The 50 Worst Films of All Time, as well as its 1980 follow-up, The Golden Turkey Awards. It was also an early episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Robot Monster was shot in four days on a budget of $16,000 by director Phil Tucker, a personal favorite filmmaker of mine. Tucker would eventually graduate to a successful career in post-production, working at Paramount on such films as the 1976 King Kong. However, Robot Monster gave him immortality, existing today just down the block from Plan 9 from Outer Space in the canon of 1950s sci-fi. It may be bad, but it's nearly impossible to dislike. Robot Monster was released at the height of the 1950s 3D craze, but has rarely been seen as it was intended. I first encountered it on VHS on a tape that cheaply simulated the effect with red and blue glasses. It looked terrible. For its 70th anniversary, the film has received a much-needed restoration courtesy of the 3D Film Archive, an organization dedicated to the preservation of stereoscopic 3D film. The company's heroic work has included preservation of such 1950s 3D landmarks as The Bubble, The Mask, It Came From Outer Space, and many more. They've also restored some important non-3D work, including the first season of The Abbott and Costello Show. I highly recommend that Blu-ray. For the rest of this episode, I'd like to share with you two interviews I did. In a few minutes, you'll hear me talk to the last surviving cast member from Robot Monster, Gregory Moffat, who played 10-year-old Johnny. 
Before that, I was very fortunate to speak to Bob Fermanek, the president and founder of the 3D Film Archive, who spearheaded the restoration. Fermanek also once served as the personal archivist of Jerry Lewis, so of course I needed to digress and ask him about that. I connected with both of them over the phone, so be prepared for the audio quality to be of telephone quality, but if you're as big a robot monster fan as I am, you've long learned to appreciate technical imperfection. I'll just start by asking, what was your experience with Robot Monster? Do you remember when you first encountered it? I was a science fiction nut as a kid. You know, having grown up in the New York metropolitan area, it it probably was on television and I saw it at some point, but it it didn't really register with me until I got a little bit older and became interested in 3D movies. And then ultimately that led to my desire to want to see a lot of them. And Robot Monster was significant in that it was the very first title I found in 35mm. And uh, it's quite a crazy story because I was working for a film storage facility in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and I was primarily there to go through nitrate film vaults. And on my lunch break, I would poke around and, you know, just wander these ancient buildings, which went back to the 1920s. It had originally been uh, Universal's East Coast studio. Uh, So there's a lot of really interesting places to explore. And there were literally thousands of old 35 millimeter shippers and pretty much abandoned materials in there. And that's where I found Robot Monster and initially found one print, inspected it, found out it was a complete right side. And then a few days later, found another print and it was a complete left side. And that was kind of unofficially the start of building the 3D film archive. And uh, I remember working on it because the prints had been separated in 1953. So they were in various stages of, of wear and damage. And I had to go through and replace all the missing frames whenever there was a jump or a splice. And did that work? And at that time, I didn't have a screening room set up for dual 35mm 3D, so I booked a facility in New York City to take it in to screen it. And when it hit the screen, I was blown away. My expectations were pretty low, you know, because of all that Golden Turkey Award stuff that happened to the film in the 70s. And Medallion Television, who was distributing the film for quite a number of years, uh, had made an anaglyphic version with the red and cyan glasses. That's how I first encountered it, by the way. I had that Rhino VHS with the red and blue 3D glasses. You've probably seen that, right? Oh, it was terrible. Yeah. yeah, absolutely terrible. And whole sections of the film went flat. And I found out years later that that happened because Medallion didn't have complete left-right elements. So only about half of the film's running time was actual 3D. So with that in mind, my expectations on this 35 millimeter print were, you know, were not very high. But when it hit the screen, I, I was knocked out how good it looked. That was 33 years ago, and it's taken that long to get a, finally get a restoration of it and get it out on 3D Blu-ray so that you know everybody could experience the film in the way that Phil Tucker and his team intended. You know, dare I ask, I mean, this is one of those movies that I think lived under the thumb of Wade Williams for a long time, that uh, kind of eccentric film collector. Uh, did you encounter him at all? Slash, was he a roadblock at all in doing the restoration? 
Well, I knew Wade for many years. I met him in the late 1970s when I first got interested in film collecting. And I began my efforts to work with him to restore the film about 15 years ago. Uh, it never happened. Uh, and eventually we were able to proceed without his involvement. And uh, that's how the Blu-ray got done and is out now in time for the 70th anniversary. Uh, Wade was an interesting man. Uh, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. But Yeah, fair uh, enough. Yeah, I mean, it... it he claimed for many years to have what existed of the camera negative and all that, and that very well may be the case, but whatever he had, we we were not given access to. We had to work from uh, from prints and, and various elements that we were able to find around the world. Now, the 3D, I mean, like I say, I've only seen it in the very bad red and blue version. Robot Monster obviously has a reputation for being kind of a bad-looking movie. How does the 3D look like? Does it does it feel like a new experience with the movie? Absolutely. The stereo cinematography is excellent. Even more surprising, considering that this was a, a relatively new camera rig, we're, we're not entirely 100% certain which rig they used. We, we think it was the stereo cine rig. But, you know, they had a good crew working it. And even though they were on location for those four days, either in um, Chavez Ravine, where the homes were demolished ultimately for Dodger Stadium, or Bronson Canyon, they shot a very high-quality 3D movie. And uh, one of the things that's so gratifying with the reception that the Blu-ray is getting is that people are really, for the first time in 70 years, having a chance to see it in a high-quality 3D version. And it's comparable to anything the studios were doing. And I think that's probably one of the biggest surprises that people will have with seeing the restoration is uh, just how fantastic a job they did with the stereo cinematography. I know that you connected with Greg Moffat, of course. Were you in that 15-year process able to connect with anyone else who was either on the production team or maybe, I don't know, related to Phil Tucker or just anyone who was in the orbit of the film? A few people. In 2003, they ran uh, the dual 35mm print that I had uh, at the World 3D Film Expo in Hollywood at the Egyptian Theater. And Phil Tucker Jr. came to the screening. It was the first time he had seen it in 3D. And, you know, he said his dad, you know, despite the film's reputation, uh, his dad really intended the film as a child's nightmare. And if you look at the script and you look at some of the things that are kind of absurd in the film and, and you put yourself in the mind of a, a 10 year old science fiction crazy boy. Well, all of a sudden, all this weird stuff doesn't seem all that strange. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, it kind of makes sense in that in that regard. And I think, uh, you know, Phil Tucker Jr. said his father thought he achieved a good film for what he had to work with. And, you know, that was a, a microscopic budget. I mean, that was $16,000. And, you know, that, that's not a lot, no matter how you look at it. But they were on location uh, over a period of four days. It was initially three days. And then a fourth day was added because uh, they secured the use of the automatic billion bubble machine. And, um, well, what works great in 3D? You have bubbles coming off the screen. So they wound up shooting more scenes of George Barrows as Roman coming in and out of the cave and with the bubble machine going. And that's why there are some shots in the film where there are bubbles and many shots where there are not, because that was kind of an 11th hour addition to the film. 
but uh, I think it's it's reputation when you see it correctly. It may not elevate it to you know uh, something uh, along the lines of a uh, day the earth stood still or forbidden planet, but uh, it's not quite nearly as bad a film as as many people think. I do think it has kind of the germ of a good story in it. You know, there's potential there. I mean, Phil Tucker is a fascinating figure, too, because he sort of did what Ed Wood never could, which was, you know, he became integrated into mainstream Hollywood, you know, working in the editing department at a studio. Did you uh, look into or have you seen any of Phil Tucker's other films that he directed? No, I haven't. And some people have asked me about a film he did called Space Jockey that was apparently never finished or never released. And um, I have no information about that. I don't think his son had any information. And actually, you know what? I take that back. Phil Tucker did the Cape Canaveral monsters, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, that was a that, that was another a dreamlike film, I would say. And that was shown on TV a lot as a kid. And I watched it again a few years ago. And you know, I think he was a talented guy, and he he did the best he could with you know very modest budgets and you know he got his films made and out there kudos to that not everybody can achieve that so a few weeks ago i have to ask a few weeks ago i actually saw you in new york introduce a double bill of jerry lewis movies the errant boy and the disorderly orderly you know it's not every day that i get to talk to jerry lewis's personal archivist and i'm just curious what were the day-to-day tasks of being jerry lewis's archivist Well, he had a warehouse in Hollywood on Santa Monica Boulevard that he uh, had started storing material in back in the 1960s. And I came along in the 80s, mid-80s, and he had no idea what was in the building. So basically, I became his full-time archivist to just go through and start cataloging and identifying these thousands and thousands of reels of film and tape and transcriptions and you name it, any kind of recorded media. And I didn't have a great deal of interaction with him at that time. He lived in Las Vegas. And he would call occasionally if if there was something in the building he needed. But more often than not, I was interacting with Joe Stabile, who was his manager at that time. And it was a, a fascinating job. I you know grew up loving his work, and here I was, 23 years old, and I'm thrown into uh, an incredible building of Jerry Lewis memorabilia, and uh, and I loved it. It was it was great fun, and I worked full time there for two years just going through and cataloging everything. And then everything got shipped to Las Vegas around 1986 or so. And um, that's when I moved back east. And I I kept in contact with Mr. Lewis until he passed. And uh, anytime he was in New York, I would see him. I spent a lot of time with him when he was prepping and, and in rehearsals for Damn Yankees on Broadway. Which I saw when it was in Toronto, believe it or not. A really treasured childhood memory. Oh, that was such a great show. And I, you know, Will, I got to tell you, I I had no idea the amount of work that goes into, you know, a Broadway show like that. And I was there every day. I was out of work at the time, which was, you know, lucky for me. And I just watched everything, the rehearsals. And, you know, the one thing I really took away from that was just how amazing he was to work with. Uh, And there was such a rooting interest for him to succeed in that show. And I remember several afternoons when he was working on uh, the Two Lost Souls number. 
with his co-star. And yeah. Forgive me, I don't remember her name, but um, you know, this was a time when it was just Jerry and one other person on stage, and yet everyone else in the crew sat there to watch and root for him and cheer him on. And there was such an amount of, of respect and love from the people on that production. It gave me a, a whole new appreciation for, you know, what Jerry Lewis brought to a production as, a, as an artist and um, just a, an amazing man, a brilliant man. And uh, I was very fortunate to have the, that that experience. I remember seeing that play, you know, as a child and um, how he was both like simultaneously quite a controlled performance, particularly in the first half, but also such an enormous presence. You know, whenever he was in a scene, it felt like there was this incredible contained force in the scene. There was so much gravitas. And then there was, you know, in the second half, there's that moment, you know, when he's doing his big show stopping number and he does 15 minutes of stand up. And I just remember like the howls of laughter as if it was this kind of like mass release of energy in the audience this this kind of like contained performance for the first you know three quarters of the play and then finally he's jerry for 15 minutes um anyway i don't have a question i'm just uh, rambling with a with a child no, memory no. Here. yeah but i tell you will that was something they really wrestled with early on because he was brought in to, I think it was Victor, was it Victor Garber who yeah, played that's right. uh, yeah. the role? Yeah, he was brought in uh, after Garber left, and the whole idea of doing that number and then having him do a little section of his nightclub act was kind of added to it, and they felt it was necessary because a lot of people, honestly, were going to see the show again to see Jerry Lewis. So they felt they needed to give a little bit of his... Uh, stage persona to the show. You know, you read things and, and comments from people in articles where they say, oh, that was his ego overtaking the show. And I was like, total nonsense. That was a, <laughs> a complete across the board decision by the producers and, you know, the people that were putting money into the show to give, you know, the audiences what they expected. And right, it, it stopped the show. It brought the house down every performance. I must have I must have seen the show a dozen times, and it never failed to to get a big reaction. I thought it was brilliantly integrated, you know, because again, it's a normal play and a normal performance for like three quarters of the running time, and then you finally get this, you know, you finally get what you came for, you know, at that at that yeah, point. Um, exactly. Sorry, one one last question along these lines. Just you know, being his archivist, was there one kind of discovery in the archives, one strange thing that you found that was kind of like a holy grail? Well, there were a lot of those uh, for me as a, as a fan, but I can tell you the one thing that completely excited uh, Jerry, and that was um, I found a 16 millimeter film with sound, and it was a filmed performance of he and Dean Martin at the Copacabana in New York City in 1954. When I found that, I reached out to Joe Stabile and I said, I think I just found something rather significant. And he reached out to Jerry and Jerry called me within five minutes and he didn't remember it, even though he had paid to have it done. But, you know, that was 30 years earlier. It, it just didn't stay on his mind. And uh, he couldn't wait to get that transferred. Uh, that was a rush, you know, to get it to the scanning facility the, that day and, and get the, the tape to him in Vegas as soon as possible. He was so excited about that. Uh, so I would say for Jerry, that was 
probably the, the coolest thing I found. You know, the other interesting thing about him at that point in his life and career is he didn't dwell on the past. He didn't live in the past. He was very much someone who lived for the day and the future. So the fact that he had this warehouse of, of material dating back to the 1940s, it didn't interest him all that much. He was happy to have saved it, but it wasn't part of his day-to-day -day routine. And there were times over the years where there were different shows done. We did a, a five-part series on the Disney Channel. An Amy biography was done where a lot of that material was looked at and brought back. And of course, then he was, you know, very much involved with the process, but he was very much someone who you know, didn't dwell on the past. He, he looked ahead. Well, I could ask about Jerry Lewis all day, so I better uh, restrain myself. One last question on Robot Monster. What can you say about what's on the Blu-ray in addition to the film? What are some of the uh, extra features people can look forward to? Well, we are enormously proud of the Blu-ray because not only the restoration of the feature being a, a massive uphill battle because we really were saddled with some pretty rough reels that we had to try to restore, but there are over two hours of bonus extras on the disc. For instance, there's a commentary track with Greg Moffat, who played Johnny in the film. Uh, there's a fantastic stereo slideshow from Hilary Hess called Travels Through Time and Space. It's about 17 minutes or so of wonderful Kodachrome stereo slides dating back to the 1940s. We've got a, a collection of trailers for 3D movies that were playing in Los Angeles in the summer of 1953 when Robot Monster came out. And that's a lot of fun. Uh, Jack Theakston put that together, and there's various snipes and, and other things that provide a real nice movie-going uh, time capsule of that period. We've got uh, two fascinating new documentaries done, one called Saving Slick and another called Rescuing Romance. And those are done by a really incredibly talented young filmmaker named Sean Thrunk. And uh, they tell the stories about saving the prologue short Stardust in Your Eyes with Slick Slavin and uh, the whole story about finding and rescuing that dual 35mm left-right print of Robot Monster in 1990. We've got a memorabilia gallery at the end of the film. Uh, there's a brand new song called Was I a Man that was written and performed by a uh, a terrific group called The Other Favorites, who I discovered on YouTube. So there's a lot of bonus extra content in the release. Uh, so I always tell people, even if Robot Monster is not super high on your bucket list, I think the several hours of bonus extras are going to give you uh, your money's worth on this 3D Blu-ray release. Gregory Moffat is the younger brother of the late and prolific Hollywood child star Sharon Moffat, who starred as Cary Grant's daughter in Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House. Gregory's own career as a child actor included a featured role alongside Fred Astaire and Betty Hutton in the 1950 film Let's Dance, and an appearance alongside George Reeves on TV's Adventures of Superman that has brought him to the convention circuit. But for years... His role as Johnny in Robot Monster was a distant memory. You are human. Your people were getting too intelligent. We could not wait until you were strong enough to attack us. We had to attack you first. I think you're just a big bully, picking on people smaller than you are. Now I will kill you. You look like a pooped-out pin. 
wheel. You know, Greg, uh, I just want to say that I, I probably saw Robot Monster for the first time when I was, you know, about the age you were in the movie. I mean, it's it's been with me for a really long time, so I'm pretty thrilled to be talking to somebody who is in the movie, I got to say. Uh, you have my deepest sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what can I say? It's It's been a huge problem. I, I actually, you know, the first question I want to ask you, Greg, is, I mean, yeah. it got, you know, a huge kind of cult reputation maybe 20 years after the after it was made. When did you start to become conscious of the fact that it had become this cult movie? Actually, probably not until the early 2000s. I knew that from time to time it would be on late night TV on the off channels at midnight or one in the morning. But uh, I had no idea that there was uh, any particular massive audience for it. But it it turns out that it wasn't until 2008 that I ever went to uh, any of these uh, conventions. Yeah, the conventions. And I went in Memphis, uh, not for Robot Monster, but for Superman. But I had pictures from several productions that I was involved in. And I sold quite a few of the of the robot monster, even at a an event that was celebrating Superman. It kind of blew me away. <laughs> yeah, there's something about that gorilla and the diving helmet that really, you know, speaks across time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not uh, quite sure what it's saying when it speaks across <laughs> time, but but okay. <laughs> It's a low budget movie that I guess you worked a couple days on, you know, 70 years ago. I mean, when you were growing up, how much did you hang on to the memory of that shooting? What did you remember about shooting it? And what did that experience mean to you? I guess the most important thing was I got paid. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to know the truth, we we all knew it was fairly low budget and that Phil didn't have a lot of money behind him. But uh, the check cashed and my mom was thrilled to death. <laughs> As you might as you might imagine. Do you remember much about Phil Tucker? Uh, actually, not a great deal. I was ten. It's possible that he's the one that interviewed me for the role, but I wouldn't swear to it. I don't know, you know, how many people he had involved in a, in the pre-production effort. I would think he would have been fairly hands-on with the cast, but again, I don't know. Well, I, I understand it was a very long time ago and a very short time. Do you remember anything about sort of the, well, two things, the experience of filming in Bronson Canyon, which looks like it was very hot and unpleasant. But then also, like as a kid, when you saw the robot monster, gorilla in the diving helmet, do you remember what you thought? I left. Yeah. I almost couldn't control myself. This is a monster. I, I don't know that I said that out loud, but I said, OK, here we go. We shot in, my memory is mid to late March. And although it looked very hot, it's, you know, it's so deserty and how do you want to say it? Uh, they're worldly, I suppose, mm-hmm. in Bronson Canyon that it would always look like it was 118 degrees out there, you know. But uh, fortunately, we shot at a time when George Barrows didn't lose 80 pounds a day walking around in that ape suit every day. Do people ask you to say that line, you look like a pooped out pinwheel? I think that's the big line from the movie. Yeah, well, there are two big lines from the movie, at least my estimation is that one. But it's probably overshadowed somewhat by uh, I cannot, yet I must. Oh, yeah. What What the monster says when he's dealing with the big hitter back on the home planet. 
the experience of being a child actor in the 1950s, I mean, Superman, but also all those other shows, how fondly do you look back on it? Because I would imagine that going to auditions, printing the headshots, working in Bronson Canyon with, you know, a, a guy in a gorilla suit, it looks like hard work to me. As you might imagine, I mean, if you think about it a little bit, not a lot of hard work is involved for my first film. I was four and I had a walk on line of can I have a piece of cake in one of my older sister's films. My memory is it was a film called The Judge Steps Out and there was a birthday party scene. And it was a day when our babysitter couldn't stay home and take care of me while my mom took Sharon to the studio. So she had to take me along. And it turned out the director wanted more kids in the scene and asked my mom if I would be willing. And she said, as long as he's got a line. (laughs) Very (laughs) smart. They gave gave me a line, and I instantly joined Screen Actors Guild. And and in 1947, at the ripe old age of four, I made my first contribution to Social Security. It was... In later years, when I started looking at that statement they send to you every year, the first time I ever looked all the way back, I said, my gosh, I I was four. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry if you've been asked this question a lot, but is there one particular TV show? I mean, obviously, Superman and Robot Monster are the famous ones. But is there a particular acting experience that you remember the most fondly? Probably my film with Betty Hutton and Fred Astaire. Let's Dance. It was it was filmed in 49 and released in 1950. And uh, I was a featured player, which made, I, I think, I'm pretty sure I made the first page of, of the cast uh, at the end of the film. It was a blast. Both of them were incredibly kind. We had good times on the set and off, uh, blocking scenes, running lines. My mom taught me to read quite early. I was probably three and a half or four, about the time I did the first film with Sharon. And when mom didn't have time to run lines with Sharon, she'd ask me to go do it. So I'd read the the lead-in lines and she'd respond. Uh, After I did the first one, mom started working with me, you know, at home about uh, different inflections, how to use emphasis in lines to make them more impactful or more understandable, that kind of stuff. And by the the time I worked with Fred and Betty, I, I was six. And they did a screen test, and uh, I heard the guy at the end of the screen test when they said, wrap it up, said something like, uh, this is the kid, or something like that. And a few days later, I got the call, and, and we went. The, the unfortunate thing was, that was probably February of, or March of 1949, and the day before the screen test, I'd been at the grocery store with my mom, and uh, one of the neighbor kids and I were good friends and played together a lot. He and his mom were in the store at the time, and he'd wandered away from her, and he snuck up behind me, and he tapped back, no tap back, and off off running he took, right? Well, I had to, I had to go chase him and tap him back, right? <laughs> ran, a, ran around the corner, <laughs> ran smack into a shopping cart, and got a big cut above my right eye. Oh, no. <laughs> screen test was scheduled for the next morning. And then the doctor used used black thread to close the to close the uh, there's six or seven stitches and the makeup people the next day to do the film they must have spent 45 minutes trying to cover up all that black i guess they were successful uh, there's a guy that runs a museum i think in spain jorge moreno he tells me that he has a copy of my screen test he keeps telling me he's going to send me a copy of it but i've yet to see it but i would love to <laughs> But they were just wonderful. And there were 
if you look at the cast in that film, you'll see so many great players from the 30s, 40s, 50s, some into the 60s. Well, like uh, Ruth Warwick, who was in Citizen Kane, and uh, George yep. Zucco, who was such a oh, great yes. character actor. I mean, you know, being in that movie, Let's Dance, which is, you know, a glossy, slick Hollywood production, legendary director, legendary actors, and then being in Robot Monster. Um, how yeah. conscious were you at that age of, wow, this is a much different experience, you know, a much more low rent experience? You're talking about Robot Monster being low rent? Well, I mean, uh, if yeah. you'll if you'll no. forgive me the judgment. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. It's hard to say that's misplaced. <laughs> <laughs> it going to cost 16 grand to put out a film, even in 1953. That's not a whole lot of risk for most investors. In any case, uh there was considerable difference, of course. We did lots of post-production work with the major motion pictures. A film from Paramount in those days, fairly lengthy budget, could last six months shooting and maybe another one or two months post-production. One of the reasons that a lot of youngsters, boys and girls, didn't get a lot of work after they turned 12 or 13 was the risk that producers and directors felt especially in a, in a film that had a long shooting schedule, was the worry about voices changing. Did you find that was the case with you as you got to sort of like uh, 10 or 12? My work stopped because we moved out of the Hollywood area. My dad was hired by Hughes Aircraft as an engineer in their new plant in Fullerton, California, right next there to Anaheim. And we bought a home in Anaheim about by air less than a mile from where they were building Disneyland. Kids got out of school. I, I was getting out of school anywhere between 2.30 and 3. To get to Hollywood for an interview in those days for kids, most of the, because that was the case for most all kids, they wouldn't schedule interviews before 4 o'clock. But they also wouldn't schedule interviews after 5 or 5.30. There were two big plants. There was a Goodyear rubber plant uh, along the freeway, and there was a General Motors assembly plant along the freeway. And one of them, the shift changed at 3.15, and the other one, the shift changed at 3.45. And they loaded hundreds of cars on the freeway at the, at the same time. If you got on the freeway between 3 and 4.30 or 5, it was two hours into the heart of LA. You know, it was two lanes each way. Anyway, my dad uh, later worked in Los Angeles when we lived in Anaheim, and he could either leave at 5 when he got off work and get home at 7.15 or 7.30, or he could hang around till 6.30 and get home at the same time because the traffic had finally thinned out. <laughs> Did you miss acting after you left L.A.? Um, I suppose the best answer to that is no. Well, I did a couple of things in junior high and high school. In the eighth or ninth grade, my English teacher wanted a tape record. Oh, what's the Dickens story? Christmas day, a Christmas story? Christmas Carol. Yeah, Christmas Carol. And uh, I played two parts in the tape version. I played uh, the little kid. Uh, Bob Cratchit. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was the boy's name. My voice, I guess, was high enough. They thought it was ethereal enough to play the voice of uh, the Christmas future. So I wound up doing both of those. But it never occurred to me to go back to Hollywood and try to resume a career. Never. <laughs> I had other interests. I played a lot of sports. I played football, baseball, basketball until I got too small or, or whatever for whichever sport. But when I got to high school, baseball was all that was left. I went bowling. I was washing dishes in a dinner house, and uh, the owner took us all to a brand-new bowling center that opened up in town. 
And uh, her son was uh, my best friend at the time. Andy Warner was his name. And uh, we were both hooked. We joined a junior league almost instantly. And I was really hooked. I eventually got it more than one job in the bowling center and stayed off and on in the bowling business. I did everything in a center from wash dishes in a coffee shop to being a porter, cleaning up the lanes in the bathrooms and working the desk and becoming a league coordinator. And then finally an assistant manager and a general manager in centers for a couple of corporations. It never occurred to me to go back into film. We moved a lot. And so my cadre of friends, especially through the sixth grade, would change. We didn't settle until we actually moved to Anaheim. And I went to the one year of grade school and then both junior high and high school at the same place. And there was a kid that I was with in high school named, I think his name was Jim D'Arcy. He knew my name. He cornered me one day and asked me if it, who he thought I was was who I was. And I said, yeah. And he says, how come you never tell anybody? And I said, you know, I, I'm not doing it now. And while it was nice in the past, it was, it's, it's in the past and it's not where my head is at this point. And, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm trying to lord my experience over them or become more valuable uh, a person to know because of what I'd done. And quite frankly, I probably kept it in the dark for the longest time. I, I just never, it wasn't part of my adult life at all. I was managing a bowling center in Bakersfield, California in the late 80s to attract people on the weekends rather than to league play. They would run things like blue chip stamp bowling and green stamp bowling. And one of the variations was you could bowl for money. And I was the caller for the event. So in the middle of this thing, I don't know, it's 12, 12, 30, something like that, maybe one o'clock, Robot Monster came on the TV. We had TVs in the center. <laughs> Wow. One every, one every other pair of lanes. And somebody saw the credits go by before the movie started. <laughs> and they saw my name. You know, I'm watching the bowlers. I'm not paying attention to what's on TV at all. And somebody came up to me and said, were you ever in the movies? And I said, why in the world would you ask me a question like that? Because <laughs> I just saw your name on this movie. And I looked up and I, oh, my God. And before it was over, maybe 50 people were instantly made aware <laughs> Of, of my previous work as a kid. <laughs> it, it wasn't a bad experience, but it was obviously one I never expected to have and had no idea how to handle. I tried to be as self-deprecating as possible and get on with it. <laughs> I, pretty much like I do now. Hey, that was a long, right. long time ago. <laughs> In fact, today it really was a long time ago. Well, you know, there's been this new restoration of Robot Monster. Have you watched it recently? I have seen cuts from the new Bayview Entertainment was kind enough to send me some copies and they got here. I was, I've been in New Jersey for the last week visiting my oldest son and uh, there was a box uh, waiting for me when I got home. I opened it up this morning and I have purposely waited until after this conversation before I go in and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have done it the other way, but, but I didn't. <laughs> I, th I think you're going to like it. It's pretty charming. I, I do know this. Bob and his team in 2013 showed a revised version of it at the Chinese theater in, uh, in Hollywood. Yeah. And they, and they invited Claudia Barrett and I to attend and we did. And, uh, I had seen, oh, they played it once at, uh, Oh, in Memphis, a lot of these places will show the work of 
their invited guests late at night after the fact. In my case, they showed robot monsters. And they had enough 3D glasses for everybody. It must have been 60 or 70 people that actually showed up to watch it. And what I remember most about it was the laughter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In any case. And you know, I've seen it reviewed as, uh, for the longest time, I would think, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to be remembered for being in one of the 10 worst films ever made. <laughs> that's That's not exactly a... You would think it wouldn't be exactly a high point in anybody's life. And yet, uh, there's a, a web page on Facebook called uh, 50 Science Fiction Stuff. Bob has finally begun to post notification there. I started a couple of months, maybe three or four months before he did. But the comments run from, I loved it, to it's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I think even the people saying it's the worst thing they've ever seen kind of like it. It's kind of a hard movie to really dislike, uh, and it's, well, it's brought it's brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. What I found interesting about those people is that they remember it. Yeah. You know, I've seen a ton of bad movies in my time. If I don't hear a title or see it on TV and it jogs my memory, I have no sense of it at all. But I worked the uh, Monster Palooza show in uh, Pasadena. A few weeks ago, it was amazing the number of people that came to my desk and uh, my table and and wanted. Uh, I sold out of a couple of the robot monster photos. It blew me away. <laughs> you know, it's hard to measure anything like that. What what real impact it had on motion pictures is difficult to say. But I mean, but you audience... can say that it's a bad movie, but clearly the fact that people are coming to your booth, they like it. Uh... Yeah. And and it amazes me in, in certain ways, and and I'm proud to tell him I'm amazed that you remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Robot Monster will be released on Blu-ray by Bayview Entertainment on July 25th. For more information on the 3D Film Archive, go to 3dfilmarchive.com. <laughs>